Welcome to Enter VR, the podcast where we talk about all things virtual reality. I am Chris Miranda, your host, and on today's show, I have someone someone very cool and special to me. Um, he has been working in the field of the medical applications of virtual reality for 25 years, uh, a scholar at uh, Stanford University's Media X Lab. Walter Greenleaf, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Chris. I'm super excited to have you on. So, uh, walk me through your your history. What, you know, how did you wind up working in virtual reality uh, in the first place? Well, it's uh, it's been fun. Um, I started, gee, back in the um, late '80s. Um, my friend Jaron Lanier had formed a company called VPL Research, and uh, we were really best friends. He lived in a garage in uh, Palo Alto, and I lived in a garage in Menlo Park. I was a grad student at Stanford studying uh, neuroscience and behavioral biology, and Jaron was uh, busy creating his his first company, which was the first company to commercialize uh, virtual reality technology. Um, I got very excited about the medical possibilities for that technology and had been a successful entrepreneur at that point myself and started a uh, a small uh, company that developed psychophysiological testing equipment for sleep research. So I had a little bit of extra money, um, and I purchased a license to their technology for medical applications, and that got me started. Um, from there, it's been um, a number of uh, exciting adventures, seeing the field evolve uh, back in those days to create a virtual environment and to see it required uh, about half a million dollars worth of equipment and was pretty exotic technology. Yet uh, I had some concepts and my colleagues had some concepts to how this technology could be used to help with things like stroke rehabilitation or with behavioral disorders or with uh, helping people with disabilities interact with uh, a virtual world and from the virtual world interact with the real world. And so it's been it's been a fun journey to see the technology finally hitting the streets and getting out there and, and use. Yeah, it is amazing. What was your, you know, what, why virtual reality initially for you? You know, I think um, like many people who are attracted to to this area, um, it's a good interface between people and the world. We're trying to magnify what people do and what we do with the internet, what we do with word processing, what we do with spreadsheets. It's all about taking humans and getting them to be able to do more. But it's often in a very awkward interface, typing or looking at a flat screen display, or some of the people who are in your audience might remember the DOS computer interface. And so, uh, you know, the people who I worked with at the time then saw it as a great enabling technology, a better way to interact with information, a better way to communicate with people. Um, and um, in, in my case and in my colleagues' case for the medical zone, we saw it as a way that we could manipulate the world. And by manipulating the world, we could slow it down, we could speed it up, and in that way, we could help with recovery from injury, uh, with recovery from a stroke, for example. In your research and in, in your time working in this technology, what have you like? What have you uncovered that, that the average person or the average even VR enthusiast wouldn't know about the technology and how it interfaces with the human brain and, 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 you know, health in general? You know, that's a very good question. Um, I think what we've uncovered is that we can take people's imagination, take people's, um, um, 
desire to uh, be involved in a community sense or to magnify what they're doing, and we can use that as motivation to accomplish some things that otherwise might be very difficult or um, impossible to do. Uh, one example is using virtual environments as a distractor for very painful medical procedures. Uh, one example is when we're um, changing the dressings for people that have um, uh, burn wounds. Uh, that's a very, very painful procedure and, and uh, often has to be done once a day. Uh, they've used virtual environments as a way not just to um, serve as a distraction, but they're significantly better than watching a DVD or playing a video game, for example. The interaction, the ability to uh, interact with other people uh, can be a very engaging experience. So I think that, that's the main thing that I found uh, has been fun to learn about virtual environments is that they, they're another level of cognitive engagement deeper than um, you might suspect. Seeing as there's so much pro promise and potential in this technology, why do you think it has taken this long for it to hit the streets? Well, I think there's been a few blind alleys that people have gone down in terms of uh, um, overhyping the technology when it wasn't quite ready. I think it hasn't been affordable till recently. And I also don't think it's really been, um, I, to be honest with you, I don't think it's quite there yet in some ways for some of the things that, that we could be doing. For example, most of the avatars that I see in virtual worlds um, don't move very naturally. The facial expressions aren't there. Um, there's people who have developed ways of using a webcam to capture your facial expression and map it to an avatar, but that's not out there commonly. So I, I think there's still some barriers to having VR environments be very natural, be very um, easy to use for all applications. Uh, for some areas, they're just they're ready to go. But for other areas, and I think this is why it hasn't been commonly accepted, um, they haven't been. Uh, that being said, another argument can be made is that virtual environments have been accepted. It, you can't get into an automobile today. You can't buy a new automobile today that hasn't been designed in a virtual environment. Um, a lot of a lot of um, virtual environments are deployed in in training applications, for example. Um, the whole military simulation world is is largely predicated on virtual reality technology. Maybe not fully immersive virtual reality technology with a head mount display, but with 3D interactive worlds. Um, so I think it is out there. It's just not out there as a common. Um, it's more of a niche application area right now. But uh, but I think with recent changes in price point, um, it will become a little bit more common. Yeah, what uh, you mentioned there were there are some areas that are ready uh, and there are others that are, are not. Can you uh, clarify a little bit more and, and perhaps give me a couple examples of what areas are, are ready and what are not? Uh, Chris, I think I'll have to ask you, but answer you by talking about my special area rather than in general. Sounds good. Uh, but for example, in the medical world, I think the technology is is very much ready for doing physical therapy and. Uh, physical rehabilitation, where we help have someone who's had a traumatic brain injury or a stroke uh, learn to recover function. Um, that's a that's a technology that is ready to go right now and has been validated uh, extensively. Uh, there's other examples like that. On the other hand, for applying the technology for um, cognitive uh, therapy, for helping people with um, social skills. Um, problems like people with autism and Asperger's, for example, who might want to rehearse um, an activity in a virtual world. 
we don't quite have the body language, the facial expressions, the nonverbal communication aspects of avatar interaction mm -hmm. down enough. So that's not quite ready yet. Um, so there's some areas where things are good to go and the barriers are more on the side of medical reimbursement and um, the inertia of how people do things in medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's other areas where the technology is not quite there yet. Right. At what point uh, have you encountered ethical issues with your research? For example, I, you know, I was uh, watching a, a news story about a, a, a young man with autism and every time and, and they, they discovered their parents, his parents discovered that he would only respond uh, to his parents if they talked in Disney voices. And so in my mind, I'm thinking about, well, what if we could use virtual reality to surround this individual in a Disney universe? Um, to for for them you know for him to have you know uh, perhaps rehabilitative uh uh properties I, i'm not sure but you know does that raise ethical concerns of of having you know putting this 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 person inside of vr uh in a world that he'll feel comfortable is that is that in a sense cutting that well, person off i see where you're going with it yeah um, I think it's like any tool. It all depends on whether you're savvy and ethical and how you would deploy it. Um, I think if technology like this could help people who might have an impairment or disability um, learn to either adapt to um, a, the real world or to learn about the real world and develop some skills, if it can be used to staircase them back to a goal, then I think it's certainly very ethical and it would be unethical not to use such technology. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if it becomes an isolating technology where it, it, it's the only world, if it's deployed in such a way, instead of staircasing people back to uh, a agreed upon goal, if it's used to uh, keep them where they are and just as a sort of uh, a portal for communications but not much else, then, then I, I, I don't think it's as, as useful. Nice. Uh, You know how uh, I was wondering, like you know, you're talk we're talking about how it can be used to treat people with phobias and anxieties. Can it go the other way around? Can it create phobias and anxieties for for people? You know, this can get kind of speculative. You know, we're talking about like when when VR is really out there and it's really uh, tangible and and a really good experience. Will, will is it, will it have that uh, you know pendulum effect? Sure. Well, I, I, let me answer your question two ways. Um, certainly with any form, when, when virtual environments have been used to treat uh, phobias or post-traumatic stress, uh, the approach is what's called uh, uh, immersion therapy. Uh, basically, you're trying to get a learned reflex um, that's been learned by the uh, limbic system in the brain to um, not respond to the same triggers and clues. And you do that really by habituating the response and transferring the response to more of a frontal lobe response as opposed to uh, an instinctual immediate limbic system response. And uh, you, if you're not competent in how you do that, you can re-traumatize the person by exposing them to the trauma that they've been previously exposed to and you don't handle it the right way, you don't teach them relaxation skills, you don't give them the proper context, then Sure, you could use a virtual environment to make someone's uh, phobia or, or traumatic experience worse. Uh, but that's the same for any form of therapy, that if it's not done the right way, that, but with a powerful tool, you could also make powerful mistakes. Um, I guess the other way I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question is to think about um, 
Um, another thing that could happen with uh, virtual environments, especially now with uh, um, 3D uh, head-mounted displays uh, like the Oculus, that if you're not adjusted correctly and, and the systems that are throwing up the video, the visual information aren't, uh, aren't very well designed, you could cause simulator sickness and have the person have a nauseous experience. And um, I once had uh, the unfortunate experience of being at a trade show and was using a, a very poorly designed head-mounted display. This is a while back um, and did get nauseous, uh, not enough to have anything happen, but to be uncomfortable. Um, five years later, I'm at a trade show and somebody throws up a, uh, a, a sl PowerPoint slide from that same virtual environment I had been in and had simulator sickness. And just that visual display got me sick again. So hmm. it's a powerful technology that, you know, you just have to be careful how you use it. Wow, that, that's extremely fascinating. It, wow. Huh. In terms of, uh, you, you know, just the business aspect and the, and, and, and the economics of using virtual reality in medicine, how much, you know, do you have any estimations as to how much uh, money it could save the healthcare industry by using virtual reality or, or the advantages of it? You know, how would you sell it to, you know, the public or, or uh, 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 the director of a hospital, I guess? I'm not sure. Well, it, it really, there's probably eight or nine different vertical niches where virtual environments could be used in medicine. Mm -hmm. And they all have a different business model and a different value proposition. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Um, and But the bottom line is, and, and not just for virtual reality technology, but for telemedicine technology, for what we call e-health technology, where we're using apps, and m-health technology, where we're using mobile apps. Uh, all this emerging technology, as applies to medical care, can um, reduce cost, but we have to be sure that they're providing good patient value. And that's been the, the gating step is coming up with uh, both a business model to save money for the, for the installation of this technology and then a um, validation showing that it actually is, is, does good and is worth the extra cost, if, if any. Um, but I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, right now, if someone is going through a uh, rehabilitation program that let's say they've had a uh, hand injury in a work-related um, activity and they've had surgery and now they're they're trying to rebuild the strength and range of motion of their hand and upper extremity um, the patient would probably be at home until they recovered and they've been assigned some home exercises to do and they might go back to see their clinician every two weeks well, it's boring and it's not functional. And if we use virtual reality environments, and I'm not necessarily meaning those with HMB, this could be just a flat screen virtual environment, to guide them on how to do the rehabilitation, to give feedback, and this is the key part, give feedback to the clinician as to how they're progressing, uh, whether they've plateaued, whether they're doing their home exercises correctly or incorrectly. We can collect this data um, by using the virtual environments at home to motivate them to do their therapy, to guide them how to do their therapy, get feedback to the clinician about how they're doing in their progress, and dynamically adjust the protocol. All of that has been shown um, through a series of very excellent validation studies to get better results. And better results from a rehabilitation procedure uh, can make the difference between a lifetime of a disability and a lifetime of no disability. So that's the value proposition and that's the value to the 
patient or to the to the clinical system. And it's just a matter of, of getting people to see it and realize it and try it out and adopt it. And uh, then, of course, in the medical community in the U.S., we have to worry about getting reimbursement for the procedure. Mm. But that's a, that's a battle that's, that's ongoing and is being won. Nice. In terms of, uh, you know, how simulation training, for example, you know, how uh, how effective is it, you know, using a virtual environments and virtual reality to to, for example, teach teenagers to to drive vehicles? It, can, can it can it really be done down to the uh, level of, of the masses, uh, like, you know, getting rid of, you know, online schools and, and, and you know, for driving or, or whatnot? I know they use simulators to you you know to teach pilots how to fly planes, but but virtual reality and, and you know using it to, to drive vehicles and and then just bringing it down to that more ubiquitous level is it is it is it really that effective? Well, I think um, I, I think it's not the same as um, as learning to do something in a quote real environment, unquote, <laughs> it can be better. Um, we can make it easy the first time. We can make it safe the first time. If you're having a problem doing it, we can allow you to concentrate on that area. It allows you to practice offline. You don't have to be in the real world. You can do it from your your office at night. Um, there's a lot, and I'm not just talking about driving simulation. I'm talking about learning any sort of complex task. A simulation can help you do that. And um, do it at your own pace in your own way and go back and focus on those areas. And by speeding down the world or speeding up the world or slowing it down or focusing on one area, we can focus on areas where skills need to be improved. Uh, a good example is surgical training. Um, a lot Previously, surgeons learning a new skill would have to learn it on a dog or a pig uh, and then, then, you know, pretty soon afterwards start doing it for the first time on people with a virtual simulation of a surgical environment. And we have some very sophisticated ones that, that um, are for endoscopic procedures, for example, are almost indistinguishable from uh, doing it uh, you know, on, a, on a live person. Yeah. Um, it allows you to overtrain. It allows you to rehearse uh, problem areas. It allows you to plan in advance what you're going to do for a complex procedure. So I would argue it's, it's not the same, um, but it can be better. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure there's plenty of examples where, it, where you, if you learn this complex skill in a virtual environment, that's good, but then you better sure transfer that training to the real environment in a careful way because it's not the same. So it, it all really depends on the application area. Is there, do you know if there are anyone uh, who's made an estimation as to how much the virtual reality uh, industry can, can, can grow in terms of... Uh, the economic and monetary value of it uh, in, in the future in the, in the realm of medicine? You know, like how big will the industry be? Will it be like a $20 billion industry in five years? Are there projections or is, is this still not being talked about? You know, I don't think anybody's looked specific at virtual reality for medicine mm -hmm. uh, because it's, again, there's many, many complex little sub-niches that would be hard to index. Um, and also... Medicine is evolving not just in terms of virtual environment technology, but telemedicine technology, uh, e-health technology. It's it's very very intertwined. So I think this well 
I think virtual environments plus other e-health technology will be very disruptive and have great economies of scale, saving a lot of money in the medical industry. And I do think that if we look downstream, um, we'll, you know, we'll start seeing, especially with an aging population, which is going to have trouble getting out and going to clinics and so on, we'll start seeing a lot more telemedicine technology. And frankly, I don't think we'll be talking about virtual reality applications of medicine per se. I think they'll sort of fade into the background and just be an enabling technology. When you know, again, when somebody's uh, um, using a AutoCAD system, a virtual reality three uh, D design system for designing an automobile, I, I don't think they probably call it virtual reality technology. They just call it design technology. So I think in medicine, uh, we probably won't have a specific niche of virtual reality applications in medicine. It'll just be. Um, you know, using your computer to learn how to do a specific skill or using the computer to, to meet with your clinician. Um, and it'll just sort of fade into the background and not be its own descriptor. Interesting. I have this notion that I sort of see in some aspects the human brain as, as, a, as a muscle. And if you train that muscle, if you, if you put it to work, it'll, it'll, it's just you know, like your muscles in your body, it gets stronger and stronger. You know, in terms of the impacts of virtual reality and aging, uh, is there research uh, uh, or, or are there studies being conducted on perhaps uh, you know, enhancing the lives of people who are, who are aging through virtual reality? I, I, wanna, I don't want to get too crazy in this, but like I want to say, could, could virtual reality reverse aging or help that? Well, um, virtual reality has been used as a better diagnostic tool for neurodegenerative diseases like uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and etc. It's also been used as a, a and better assessment means better matching of the right clinical protocol to the problem. Um, they've also used virtual environments to help train people to adapt to a disability. For example, with in the course of aging, if you develop a uh, movement disorder like Parkinson's and you need to learn, relearn how to take care of yourselves, or let's say you've had a stroke and you need to relearn how to do what we call an activity of daily living. Virtual environments can be used to slow down the speed of the world and to um, uh, have you learn that skill in a simulation and then transfer it over to the real world. So there are some applications there that will help with some of the consequences of, of aging or injury. Uh, in terms of prevention, well, that's an area of fertile research, and um, a lot of the claims that are out there by um, companies that say that they have online games and things like that that can reverse the aging process are, are not accurate at all. Uh, those, by and large, a lot of those systems can be used to learn a, a very narrowly defined skill, like learning to memorize a list better or to learn to sequence better. But by and large, uh, a lot of the systems out there don't do anything to reverse cognitive aging. Uh, there has been some recent um, work by Adam Gazalia's lab at UC, um, University of San Francisco, um, University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, that has shown that using a 3D interactive environment, more of a gaming-like environment, they've been able to transfer over and reinforce some what we call executive function skills and reverse that aspect of aging. And that's really actually very exciting. But I, I say that as an example of one thing that does seem to work, but a lot of the noise that's out there of things that people claim make a big difference are, are really just 
more, you know, you'd be better off um, going out and, and spending, spending hours playing an online game. You'd be better off going out and interacting with the world and, and uh, um, learning a new language or something like that, or learning to learning a new real world skill set that might help with cognitive aging much better than some of the online systems that are out there. Interesting. In terms of, you know, the, the parts of the human brain that get activated in virtual reality, do you have any insights in, into, into what is happening inside the brain uh, when, when a person is immersed in, inside of a virtual world? It's, well, since the virtual environments are providing sensory stimulus to the brain, um, the same way um, the real world is providing sensory stimulus to the brain, it's more or less the same thing. It's I, I wouldn't say virtual reality technology affects the brain any differently than anything else. That being said, in a virtual environment, we can change the physics, we can change the um, the rules of what you perceive. So um, uh, we can do more in a virtual environment. So I, I wouldn't say virtual reality affects the brain any differently, but what we do with the virtual environments um, can actually be, be quite profound. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm I'm super fascinated by how you know. And what is the end point? You know, in, in your mind, what what will virtual reality look like ten years, twenty years from now? Are we going to quite literally connect the human brain to the machine, and we'll be interfaced? You know, like a, a hybrid human. Uh, you know, um, computer man. I don't know. Like, the, is there is that is that a possibility? I mean, I know it's far away, but like, is that what the end goal is of 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 being able to have an HMD? In, you know, is this where it starts? Where do you think it'll end? Well, I think we've started um, down this pathway for a long time. Uh, you know, there's been virtual environments with HMDs for thirty or more years, and uh, the technology is getting better uh, and less expensive and more sophisticated, but I don't see it necessarily ending up in, in a scenario that you just described. Uh, I think um, the world 20 years from now or 30 years from now won't be all that different than uh, what it is now in, in this regard. I, I think people will still get up in the morning and they'll still um, go to their job. They might go to their job by, by staying in their house instead of getting in a car, but they'll still, the basic things we do will still be there. And I don't see us um, just interacting with some sort of plugged in neural connection. Uh, I don't see, I see that, I don't see that because of my perspective on how the brain works. Um, I don't think we'll be able to have a, a, a direct plug in type of interface, but I do think we'll be able to leverage uh, interactive virtual environments as a way to interact with the world and we'll be able to do a lot more profound things. But I, I think, you know, basically things, you know, people still have lunch and, you know, get, get upset when they um, have a first date and it doesn't go well. And I don't think things are going to be all that different. I don't think technology is going to be our way of interfacing with the world, um, um, except maybe as a communication medium. Interesting. I've uh, I've been I've been planning uh, with with uh, Gunter S. Thompson, uh, a virtual reality host uh, of, of a talk show, a, a way to 
conduct a marathon uh you know we're talking about a couple years from now when there's you know consumer version two or or whatnot and uh, and we're thinking about conducting a marathon like a hundred hours inside the rift uh without breaks and i'm I'm thinking about using a special chair that or or astronaut diapers or something um you know what do you think would 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 happen if at all anything uh to a person who goes a hundred hours, a hundred, two hundred hours inside inside virtual reality without breaks. Well, you know, I think it's going to be like the first time people went scuba diving or, or went um, to the moon. Um, I think whenever you use technology in a way that your life is intertwined with it, uh, the first few versions of that are going to be potentially uncomfortable and and maybe dangerous. Um, because we won't have things quite right. We won't have the visual input uh, aligned such that it's, um, you know, your brain is very plastic. It adapts to things, and you may be able to adapt to the nuances of the virtual immersion experience that you have, um, but what if things are off a little bit and your brain is adapt? I'm not so much worried about what would happen while you're in the virtual environment, but the reentry, just as someone coming back from being on the space station for a while has to adjust. So I think we'll find out, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily dangerous about being fully immersed for a, a long amount of time um, that I know about. And it's just, I don't know really what, what the effects will be. Um, on our cognitive systems and on our, our, our motor systems of being immersed for that long. But I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, for science, uh, I, 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 we will conduct this. Um, and it, in terms of, you know, how VR can shape our, our, our identities, like, you know, I, a, a large part of my life was shaped by the fact that I grew up with, with the internet and, and I've had access to this, to this thing all, you know, for a, a good chunk of my life when, you know, if I ever have kids and they grow up in a world where virtual reality is ubiquitous, um, how will that, when they're spending eight hours, you know, nine hours inside the rift, either going to school or, or, or playing around, you know, how will that change Will that even change their identity? Will will people have double identities where one will a virtual and a real identity, or or is that too speculative at this point? You know, I'm I'm not sure um, about that. I think that it probably is the issue of identity is a very complex one, and I think that we put on a different number of different identities now just by costumes and things like that. Um, I guess we'll find out. I, I, I really don't know if I have a good image of how that might play out, Chris. Well, thank you for uh, answering, uh, you know, in, in your in that honest, honest manner. Um, what excites you the most about this technology going forward? Well, again, because my focus has been on medical applications, mm-hmm. um, what I'm excited about is that I think we'll be able to um, reach people in a more profound way um, that will – allow us to provide lower cost health care and get better results. Um, I, I, I think especially in the field of behavioral medicine, uh, where we're trying to treat um, addictions and substance abuse disorders or treat post-traumatic stress or treat um, uh, other cognitive problems, I, I think it's a very profound technology that will allow a lot of breakthroughs in that field, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that.
what is your are you weary of anything are you do you are you worried or or scared even of of where this technology could end up in the future hmm. you know i don't think it's my personality to to worry too much about the downside of things um huh. but let me give it a thought for a second um i guess i do worry that people as they roll out this technology for a number of different um, areas entertainment communication um, the medical area as we as we talked about if if it's done in a lame way I mean, we've gone through so many hype cycles of this technology and my worry is that um, if somebody brings out something and they do a very poor job on the design or they do um, a very poor job on positioning it where they don't support it very well, that people have bad experiences get turned off from the technology. So I'm not worried about the technology per se. I think it will find its way to be used effectively. But I think we could be set back a bit if people um, don't do a very good job of using it. Mm. Yeah, especially now that I'm seeing this rush of of, of and for example, uh, there's this, uh, a couple companies coming out with their own HMDs, and and I feel like it's this, it's this rush like, oh snaps, you know, it's you know, especially because of the whole Facebook deal, two billion dollars, that's a, a massively appealing, and and why wouldn't you want to? Um, but I feel like you're you're right. I, there's going to be this section of people who don't know. I don't know if they'll have the best interest uh, of the industry in mind, but more like their own and figuring out how to monetize specifically with it so yeah that's a very good point you bring up I, I, I haven't quite thought of that and yeah I wonder I wonder how it'll play out what are your you know who, what what inspired you in your childhood uh, to, to be a part of this or I'm sorry, I'm being distracted here a second okay, no um, um, I don't think I can say that anything per se inspired me. I think I was just fortunate enough when I was in my um, mid-20s to run across a, a, a really group of brilliant individuals who were pioneering this technology. And I was fortunate enough to say, hey, it might have some uh, applications in my area and was able to catch the wave. Mm -hmm. But that was 25 years ago. And I think that that wave has come and crested and then fallen and then crested again, then fallen. There's been several hype cycles, and I still remain optimistic, but uh, I'm sort of getting a little bit impatient, too. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this time uh, the technology will break through and will, won't be viewed as sort of just another hype cycle, and will start getting out there. In, in, in a way, Chris, I hope the term virtual reality disappears. Hmm. I, I'm hoping that we will be interacting with information, interacting with, uh, where appropriate, with other people, um, using um, technology to bridge the gap. But we won't call it virtual reality technology. It will just be the way we interact with the world, uh, or one way that we interact with the world. So that, that's my hope. That's super interesting. I Wow. How, the term virtual reality disappears. What do you think would, we'll, we'll, we'll call it? It'll just be... It'll just be like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I can't, you're blowing my mind here. <laughs> you know, when we, when we use a computer to type, to send email to people, um, there were probably terms for that 20 or 30 years ago that, that we don't use now. And I think, right. I think it will just be a communication tool and we won't say, Oh, I'll, I'll meet you in virtual reality. We'll say, I'll meet you at that spot. We were last time. Ah, 
I, I see. I like that. I like the ah, uh, interesting. And I, I, ah, uh, I can, I see that, for sure. Can virtual, can virtual worlds, uh, and this technology help us uncover more about the human brain, learn more? You know, I, I, I again, I'm, 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 I'm talking about, I'm, I'm in crazy town here. But can, will it help us pinpoint, you know, the where consciousness resides, or, or is this, you know, just too crazy of a thought? Well, I, I think in a way, yes. I think we'll be able to use virtual environments as a way to stimulate people in a um, brain imaging situation, and we'll be able to understand the functions of the brain a lot better because we'll have better tools. And uh, imagine being in a um, PET scanner or an MRI machine, and we're imaging the functional aspects of the brain, and at the same time we're, we're able to stimulate it in a very realistic way in that virtual environment, I think it'll help us understand the cognitive function a lot better. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, whether we'll ever really understand consciousness, I, I, that's a binary question. And I don't think I can give a yes or no answer, but I think we'll, we'll get better at it. Yeah. That's, yeah. And, yeah. Well, how much more, how do you, how far have we come along in terms of understanding the human brain here in the 2014 by, by now, you know, if, if there was a number like percentage wise, are we at 2%? Are we at 5%? What do you, what do you think? Oh boy. Um, well, right now we're spending billions of dollars to multi-billions of dollars uh, worldwide to understand how the brain works a little bit better because it's so important for health and disease and um, there's a big problem coming down the road as the baby boomers age. Um, one out of uh, four or five of us will develop Alzheimer's if we live to be in our 80s or 90s or when we live to be in our 80s and 90s. So there's a huge amount of research going on uh, in terms of trying to understand this. I, I, don't, I think it's such a complex organ. I don't think we'll ever um, get to a point where we have modeled it or understand it um, as much as we as as all the way, but I think we'll make big progress. I think we understand the brain a lot better now than we did ten years ago, hmm. and I think ten years from now we'll understand it a lot more. And I and I think virtual reality technology will be part of part of that process. What about the use of of, of chemical compounds to uh, I, I, again I don't I'm again crazy town to perhaps peek inside the brain uh, you know is that is that is that is the prohibition on on psychedelics and and other chemical compounds like has that slowed down research into the human consciousness uh, or I mean well you know it, it has it's been prohibited recreationally mm -hmm. and it's been restricted in terms of research but there has always been people doing research on um, mind-altering substances and, and other things and how they affect the brain and how they can be used for uh, healthcare purposes. So it's maybe slowed down, but it hasn't stopped. So um, I, I think there's a lot of really good research going on in this field. In our lifetimes, do you think we'll be able to augment the human brain? Oh, I think we augment it right now with um, um, – you know, my, my cell phone is an augmentation of my, my, my brain. Um, I guess you mean by some direct interface? Yeah, cybernetics or nanomachines or genetic engineering. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly. I think all of those, yes. Uh, I think we will see some of that in our lifetime. Right now we already have um, 
brain interfaces that are implanted for people for prosthetic purposes to control a limb. Um, and we're, we're, we certainly use a lot of um, EEG technology to capture brain states and use it to control the environment. So yes, I, I think it is happening now and it will only get better. Have you have you run into that article where they were using uh, the blood of young mice to have a significant reverse aging pro uh, uh, process sure. on the blood of, on on older mice? And yeah, I'm it, familiar with that work. How that you know if if it gets to the point where they're able to use it on human beings, how would that even how would that affect society? I mean, you know, or at, if at all. Well. Um... I think it will affect society in a very good way. Uh -huh. um, I think we will, you know, basically this is just validating what people have known all along is that there's some uh, factors in our blood, um, as stem cells and uh, other things like that, which help reverse the vagaries of aging. And once we isolate those factors and can be able to reproduce them and, and provide them uh, safely to people, Uh, we'll be able to prevent some of the degenerative aspects of aging, both you know our muscular system and our cognition system, and other areas. And that means that people will it will compress morbidity, meaning we may not live um, much longer. Um, that's a whole different issue. But I think the quality of life um, will be better. You know, in other words, we won't have a significant decline in our function. Um, as early, we'll be able to push that back until we're 110 or 100, as opposed to having it happen earlier. So I, th I think it'll give us a higher quality of life as we age. And, and eventually, you know, we'll be able to figure out ways to extend life itself. Um, but I think the technology you just described is mostly going to improve the quality of life as we age. Oh, yeah, I'm certainly excited for it, for sure. Um, in terms of Using virtual reality to treat people with, you know, like sociopathic disorders, you know, I, for example, I, I, I was I'm aware and I might be uh, making this up. I hope I'm not. But I, I was reading an article where 25 percent of Wall Street CEOs or bankers are, are sociopaths. And I wonder if you we could use virtual reality to create empathy and, and to treat, you know, something like sociopathy on, on, on a human being. Is that will that be possible? Well, certainly. I, I think we use virtual environments right now. Well, we use – there's cognitive behavioral therapy approaches to teaching empathy. And I think virtual environments are – can be used as a more profound way of teaching people um, uh, skills. Uh, you can do role-playing and scenario uh, rehearsal. You can practice extreme events that you normally wouldn't have come across. So – I think it will be a natural extension to the current ways we try and teach empathy to people. What about uh, using it in, in terms of uh, manipulation? Uh, can, can virtual reality you be used to manipulate the minds of, uh, minds of others? You know, we manipulate the minds of others all the time by what we say and what we do. Mm -hmm. um, humans are very um, social animals, and we emulate each other in very many ways and we learn from each other in many ways. And um, so I think virtual reality technology, like any communication technology, um, will be used to manipulate, if you want to use that phrase, uh, other people. Um, I think it will um, 
you know, it's, it's like, yeah, any tool, it could be used for good purposes or bad purposes. Mm-hmm. I think it's a profound technology. We get more cognitive engagement through it. So I think if you're trying to train someone how to say no to, to a substance they're addicted to and you use virtual environments to uh, give them a time to practice that and build situational confidence, well, that's manipulating them, but that's manipulating them for a way that they want to do so they can give up this uh, addiction that's been plaguing their life and ruining their family life. Um, so, yes, I think virtual environments will and are being used to manipulate people. But again, like any tool, it, it probably can be used for nefarious purposes, too. Can you expand a little bit more on how uh, VR can be used to treat addiction? Is pra- so a- as we speak, is it uh, feasible to put an, a heroin addict uh, or are there treatments to put heroin addicts in, in VR to treat their addiction issues? Yeah, yeah, it's oh. used for all forms of substance abuse, ranging from um, cannabis to alcohol to nicotine to um, to methamphetamine to cocaine um, to opiates. Um, um, Basically, the virtual environments can be used to do three or four important things. One, they can be used to uh, induce cravings in a safe way. It's not really um, very safe to create a craving um, in your your office. Um, you know, it's not necessarily ethical sometimes to do that. Um, number two, it can be used to do teach what we call situational confidence. Uh, it's one thing to say to yourself uh, when you're working with your your sponsor or your clinician, I'm going to say no next time someone offers me uh, a drink. But then you walk into a party and somebody comes over and offers you a drink and you've got a lot of peer pressure and you've got you know a lot of reflex reactions that you have to unlearn. It's better to practice that in advance, practicing no. And we can do that in a virtual environment very easily and it's done clinically all the time. Um, so... And I guess the third way virtual environments can be used uh, is to form support groups. Um, we can, if you want to have a uh, a you know substance abuse anonymous type of meeting, um, but you live in a small town and there's no place to go where you can go anonymously, well, why not meet in a virtual chat room mm-hmm. and have a virtual AA meeting? Wow. Can virtual reality be addictive? And it, and if it and if it can be, can it also be used to reverse the addiction process? I was the other uh, yesterday. I was uh, watching uh, something about how a, a young man uh, had a son who he was playing video games and he was so into the video game that he smothered his 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 own son um, because he was crying. And and I wonder if could could we use can can it be addictive and can we use it in reverse? I wonder. Well, um, I think anything that's pleasurable, um, uh, especially socially pleasurable, can be very, very addictive. And and a lot of people are already, you know, um, spend a huge amount of time in online virtual worlds in the gaming environment. And so, yes, uh, people people can get a lot of pleasure out of these things and can get to where they turn away from other things to pursue that pleasure. Um, so yes, they can be addictive. Can they be used to, um, and we just described how they can be used to treat other forms of addictions. Can virtual environments be used to um, help with online interactive game addictions? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I have to think about it. I mean, one, one, one thinks of what happened in the movie Clockwork Orange with uh, the use of 
aversion therapy to train someone to have a you know a, a, a nauseating reaction to a certain situation. So maybe what we should do, Chris, is get people to who are addicted to online games, try them out in a very poorly designed HMD, get very sick, and then they'll never want to do it again. But that's the only thing I'm coming up with. <laughs> yeah, that could actually work. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, this is it's been really interesting. Uh, just a last couple questions. Um, are you are you how do you how do you justify how do you how do you say to someone who says, uh, you know, this who, who has the opinion that uh, that VR and this virtual reality technology is is a drug? You know, how do you how do you counteract that that point? Well, it's the same response if somebody says online games are a drug or uh, the internet is a drug or television is a drug or the telephone is a drug. Um, you know, it's a communication tool. It's a way of interacting with the world. And um, yes, they, for some people, if uh, you know, who have that tendency and who get trapped in it, it could become an addiction just like uh, anything that's, cognitively engaging and pleasurable can become an addiction. But um, I think it's how you use it. You know, um, uh, if, if I'm a, a surgeon who's learning to do a very complex 3D surgical procedure and we can design that procedure and rehearse it in advance and save uh, somebody's life, then I'm using that drug the right way. Um, if, on the other hand, I'm someone who's dropped out of all other communication just to exist in a gaming environment, then that's not necessarily a good thing. So I think it all, you know, I think you have to have a more nuanced response to a question like that and just say it depends on the situation. Yeah. Just final question. Uh, I know you're a busy man. Uh, so Facebook wants to create a billion-person metaverse. And in this billion, you know, assuming the pie in the sky, this 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 occurs, and I think it will. Um, what are what do you think are the social ramifications of being able to a uh, use big data to make inferences of the hive mind, you know, of all the, all these different human minds together, and and making inferences of what they look like, what they like, how they act, all that all that stuff, like, and 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 b. Is, is this something that we should have a more a wider discussion as a society about? Like, you know, who are you? Should we trust you? What are you going to do with this information? What are your thoughts on this? Well, obviously, we need to have a discussion about this. Um, people give a lot of information about themselves away right now every time you use your um, um, frequent buyer card at a grocery store or you at a gasoline station or, you know, I'm sure that, you know, Amazon knows not just what books I buy, but also if I'm reading them on an e-reader, what pace I read at and what sections I find the most interesting because I pay, I slow down on my pace of reading. Um, so there's a lot of information being collected out there about us and it can be used for good or bad purposes. Again, uh, it's the same razor's edge as we discussed before. Um, that information could be used to help monitor for disease outbreaks. It could be used to help understand how our brains work and help people who've had um, an impairment or a disability or a stroke recover. And this technology and, and big data can be used for great purposes. But we should have a discussion about our privacy and we should have a discussion about uh, 
uh, what the society implications are. And and I, I think we're getting there. You know, uh, I think Europe is a little bit ahead of the U.S. in terms of uh, uh, looking at some of these issues. Um, but I think we will have those discussions. I, I'd rather see the, the players like Google and, and Facebook and Microsoft and other groups be proactive and come up with ethical guidelines and uh, um, decisions about how data should be used and allow people to have access to what data has been collected about them and be able to update it and refresh it or delete it. And I also think people should be paid when they provide data to to these servers. Yes. But that's a bigger discussion. Yeah, it, it, totally, it truly is. Is, is. is privacy going to go the wayside in the 21st century? Is it going to become you know, something that we used to talk about, that we used to remember? I think it's up to us. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's our choice right now as to whether we allow that to happen or not. And um, so I don't know because it's our choice. Um, my prediction, if I have to make a prediction, and I'm really doing so reluctantly, my prediction is that we're going to have to uh, pay for privacy, that those who can afford to do things without using uh, these frequent uh, buyer systems or subscribing to networks that collect data um, will have more privacy than those people who need to get a discount on what they're doing and in exchange for getting the discount uh, give access to their data. So they might get free cable in exchange for being studied. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it will break down on – my prediction is it will break down on economic lines. I'd rather have that not be the case, but that's my, my hunch as to what will happen. I think I think you're right. I, I know this we're, we're running a little bit late but I, I need to know I need to ask you this you know how do I you know when I talk to my little cousins and I tell them about the NSA and 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 I tell them about you know I shouldn't tell them about the NSA they're well they're they're 16 and 18 so they they they're old enough but you know when I tell them about the NSA and Edward Snowden and I tell them about how uh, governments are collecting your data and all that stuff they don't care they they don't care how why is privacy important why why should they care why should i care about my privacy well um i guess we can go back to what the founders of our country uh, felt which is that you need to have certain uh degrees of privacy and um in order to prevent the risk of tyranny that um if society is, if every, if everything is known about everyone, and we have good leadership in our country, um, and in the rest of the world, then that's great. But it really primes the possibility for there to be dictators and tyranny and and big problems, uh, either coming from the corporate sector or from the government sector, if 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 there isn't privacy. So I would say you should, as a society, value privacy. Um, because it's risky not to. Are we hard hardwired in our brains to to want privacy? I think that's a culturally learned thing. I, oh. I I think that actually when people were growing up in the savannah and well, growing up evolving in the savannah, and I think when people live in very simple um, sim- simple well that's not a good phrase when people live in cultures that haven't developed don't have a lot of technology in small villages, for example, then there is not much privacy because everybody knows what everybody's doing and everybody's living in the same hut or village. Um, so I think 
I think privacy is is something that has happened as we've become a more urban um, society. And uh, um, and again, I think privacy is a good way to in an urban society in a more aggregated society. There's a risk of people gathering power and using that power inappropriately, mm-hmm. and that's why privacy is important. Is it's it's uh, if you're ever going to have the ability to resist bad things, you need to have um, you, you you can't be outmatched by the powers the people in, in power who know everything about you and who know what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. I agree. No, so, uh, I, in my mind, privacy, a, a certain degree of privacy is, is equals freedom um, and having the freedom to choose who I want to share, who I am with. And, and that's a big thing for me. Um, Walter Greenleaf, you have been a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality. Uh, by the way, that term is going to go away eventually, right? And, and <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so happy that you came on my podcast. Uh, do you have any final comments or questions before we start closing up? No, just thank you, for Chris, for some great questions. And um, I, I wish in a way I had been able to ask you the same questions, but maybe I'll get a chance to get even sometime. Oh, I'll take you into the rabbit hole, so no worries. Whenever whenever you're ready, uh, you're more than welcome. My doors are perpetually open for you, good sir. Um, how can people stay in touch? How can people uh, follow what you're doing and all that good stuff? Um, well, I, I'm findable on, on – <laughs> I'm not that private a person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can – a good way to find that me and, and about me is through my LinkedIn account. Okay. And I will put that in the show notes. Uh, once again, thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Chris.